Welcome to the second Kickstart the Week podcast. This is your comic maven, Nicole D'Andrea. I've done hundreds of text interviews with creators of crowdfunding projects, typically for comic books on Kickstarter. I feel very honored that my second guest is the founder of Signal Comics, Samuel George London. Today, we're talking about his Kickstarter for Band of Warriors number one, which combines historical events with a mixture of Celtic and Greek mythology. Sam is the creator and writer of this mature series, which is perfect for fans of 300 and Birthright. Be prepared for bloodshed and backstabbing. Just like last time, for full disclosure purposes, I've known Sam for a couple of years and done editing work for many books from Signal Comics, including this issue of Band of Warriors. So I have already read the book and I'm also one of its Kickstarter backers. Enjoy the interview. And if you like what you hear, support the book on Kickstarter. I just have to pretend we haven't been talking for like the last 10 minutes. <laughs> Classic, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes, it doesn't feel awkward at all. Okay. Well, hi, Sam. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast this week with us to talk about Band of Warriors. Absolute pleasure, Nicole. I guess we will just jump right into your Kickstarter that you have. So despite this not being your first comic book, I know you have a lot of books under your belt that you funded through Kickstarter, specifically the Milford Green series. Project Hoax, and recently Access Denied. You mentioned on the Kickstarter page that Band of Warriors was the the first one that popped into your head, but you haven't done it until now. Can you talk a bit about the origins of the idea and why you waited until now to start going into it? Yeah, so um, it was uh, the summer of 2016, um, and I was visiting uh, my mother's house on the island of Crete, um, which is basically in the middle of the Mediterranean. And yeah, it's it's a beautiful place. It's got mountains, it's got beaches, it's got sun. Um, absolutely amazing place. But uh, when visiting there, I discovered a lot of the history that was there, both ancient history, but also fairly recently kind of World War II stuff, which, which is really interesting. But that's not what Band of Warriors is about. <laughs> Band of Warriors <laughs> is about all the ancient stuff. Um, and of course, kind of, you know, you you know a little bit about ancient Greece and things, but the things that you learn at school tend to be more around about 500 BC. And what's interesting is that about a thousand years before that, Crete, which is the, the biggest island in Greece, was really kind of a hub of activity. And it was actually, it was more of a technologically advanced culture than mainland Greece in a lot of ways. I mean, the reason for that was because it's... It, it was a major trade hub um, between Egypt and the Middle East as well. Um, and then, you know, off towards Spain and Italy and places like that. So um, it was a, it was a real hub of um, activity. And obviously with that comes wealth. And with wealth, you can you can do almost anything. <laughs> um, so um, that's kind of, you know, how, how it was. But when when you read up on the history even more, there's a there's a really interesting discovery that they made kind of in the in the 1930s um, a guy called Arthur Evans who discovered the the palace of Knossos and he named the people that lived there the Minoans which is after the the mythological king uh, King Minos um, who's the, a lot of fun words to say <laughs> yeah I know yeah it's, it's quite a, quite a tongue twister um, but he was he was the father of, uh, of the Minotaur and yeah, that's what they think potentially is that 
the palace of Knossos was potentially the labyrinth because if you look out look at the layout of the palace of Knossos it's 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 very corridor heavy with lots of pillars it opens up to a large courtyard but it's got a lot of corridors and things and it looks it basically looks like a labyrinth um, which is amazing and my minor tour actually means king bull so my minos is king and tor is bull and so potentially what it was is that the legend of minotaur was basically a king of the bulls who lived in crete and potentially at the palace of knossos um, and so uh, i found out all of this stuff whilst on crete and i found it really interesting because i'm very interested in the history i think it's absolutely fascinating and i didn't think much of it further but then later in the uh, in the summer I uh, visited my uh, wife's parents who who were in Brittany in France and uh, I, I'd visited there before of course but this time we went to a megalithic site which is where they had lots of these big tall stones kind of like a, a mini Stonehenge almost and uh, that was really close to an old tin mine um, that was you know, used in the Bronze Age, which is about 1500 BC. And it turns out that tin was actually one of the largest deposits in Europe, uh, is in yeah. Brittany, in France, and in uh, and in the south of Britain as well. And at the time, around 1500 BC, it was actually traded from Britain and France all the way to places like Crete, essentially, and so there was actually this trading relationship that was going on, international trading relationship going on between France, Britain and Crete and even Egypt. And another thing I found out that, that I didn't don't speak about on the Kickstarter page is that they, they've actually found amber from the beaches of Denmark in Egyptian artifacts, oh, wow. um, which is, yeah, I know it's incredible. So, you know, at some point, an Egyptian would have gone up to Denmark, got some amber and come back with it. I mean, it's just, it's wild. Like when I think about it, like all those thousands of years ago, but yeah, so a lot of, some of the artifacts around Crete have actually got tin from France and Britain. And the reason that tin is so important, if you're not in the know, is that bronze is made up of copper and tin. And so tin was very important at the time for making bronze for which you made weapons, armor, and, and nice things as well but obviously at the time armor and and swords spoke <laughs> more so, warlike uh warlike yeah. uh, materials were a bit more preferred precisely but uh when i made this connection it really kind of got my my creative cogs turning <laughs> and i started kind of coming up with this story about how can i how can i connect kind of you know what was going on in crete at the time with this is kind of fairly advanced civilization and also this trading relationship with Brittany and even uh, Britain at the time. And this it started to form in my head. And I initially kind of thought, oh, maybe I should turn this into a novel because it's going to be it's going to be pretty epic and it's it might require quite a lot of explanation and so i even in 2016 i i'd begun to try and outline a novel based on on all on all of this but as time went on um in 2018 is when i really started um creating comics 
and as you know um, the the first one I came up with was the with the Milford Green series uh, for for the comic because it's as far as it goes it's a, it's a fairly straight storyline that doesn't require too many tangents and things but the reason that I've waited till now for Band of Warriors is because it's quite complex down the road certainly so I really wanted to kind of cut my teeth with some simpler storylines first um, as a comic creator before actually, you know, going forth with an epic tale like uh, like Band of Warriors. Kind of build up your repertoire in a way so that you can be yeah. more prepared for such a story. Yeah, exactly that. Because if, if I tried to jump into Band of Warriors, I think I could have really ended up doing a bit of a half-assed job, really think I'm, I might have messed it up <laughs> um, if I was to do it too early but uh, now I feel kind of more comfortable in my shoes as a, as a writer I, I definitely feel more confident in forging forward with it with a story like Band of Warriors. Well it's awesome that you've you know kind of gained the experience that you needed to get into the place where you could write this epic as well as you know recognize that you probably shouldn't jump into a huge project like this right away. So I'm kind of curious because, I mean, you sound obviously very well informed about it as, as both like a history buff and as someone who's into mythology. How long would you say overall it took to really, you know, get the research done that you needed to uh, really create the, uh, the outline for the series? Ooh, yeah, at, le- at least three years, wow. I'd have thought. Um, and, and you, know, <laughs> you know, obviously that's not full time. But um, still, that's yeah, it's still yeah, quite quite a lot of research and things. Um, and at at the same time, so there's another element to this as well that that I neglected to mention. That so at the time they were actually in the midst of what's called the Late Bronze Age collapse. At the same time, so um, around 1500 BC, there was actually a bit of a collapse of civilization and um technological advancement basically ceased for like 500 years and that was likely started by this massive volcanic eruption that happened just off uh, about i think it was a it's about 60 miles off the north coast of crete on this little island called thera it was thera at the time uh, it's, it's called santorini now but uh it's this tiny tiny island but basically the middle of, it was all a volcano this this island and it erupted around 1500 bc and when you have a massive volcanic eruption like that it has a massive impact i mean all over the world but in the local area it really does have an impact on farming and so if you're not able to feed people then obviously people starve to death it stops a lot of progress it kind of blots out the sun get colder temperatures and uh, yeah there's so many knock-on effects that just kind of prevent civilization from from progressing so yeah that was one of the elements that was that was involved with it as well um, and, and again that's one of the reasons that it that it took so long to make these connections because there's so many things going on at the time and then really trying to lay it all out on a on a cork board <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and get some red twine to try and make all the connections and stuff but yeah um it's it's been a lot of fun at the same time as it is as a lot of hard work oh i'm sure I, I can definitely understand pushing yourself to get as much historical information as you feel you need for the story and just 
I can totally see you having a good time with that. It's a lot of fun trying to kind of make make the connections and and reading up on on all of the mythology, but also trying to find out the actual historical events surrounding the mythology at the same time. So, you know, for a long time, people thought that Troy, for instance, was it was just a story. It was just mythology. But then kind of I think it was the early 1900s that we actually find found the spot where it was based on Homer's poem we managed to actually find it and it turns out that mythological story was it's kind of true <laughs> so it's it's really interesting that that there are bits of truth to to a lot of the mythology that's out there and when it comes to the minotaur it's likely that there was potentially a, a king on crete who people didn't like and kind of my my take on it is that potentially it was it was basically a smear campaign against Crete, the Minotaur yeah. thing, just trying to kind of make them out to be these these bad people that have kind of got you know misshapen sons and and things like that, and that they they're tyrannical and things. Because what actually happened is that um, the Mycenaeans, who were the mainland Greeks, actually invaded Knossos and basically burnt down. Crete to the ground um oh. so you find a lot of temples and palaces that have been scorched by Mycenaeans who are mainland Greeks so yeah it's it's really interesting to find out all these bits and try and connect it with the mythology and try and make the connections yeah I know one of the things that you definitely promoted on your kickstarter for the comic in particular is that you're really trying to have it stay historically accurate in terms mm -hmm. of things like the location mild nudity and some other yeah. things that make it a more mature comic i'm kind of curious with just the significance of what you're keeping historically accurate as well as how you're kind of interweaving that with what you said about the more fantastical mythological elements yeah so for instance so the historical accuracy one of the things that you mentioned there so the mild nudity so minoan women at the time actually kind of walked around bare-breasted so they basically they had dresses on but their dresses would part below their their chest bone and then fan out around their breasts to kind of you know show them off i guess <laughs> and uh, because because the men were walking around topless for the most part because it was very very it was an even warmer climate back then as well and yeah i guess they just thought you know the men are walking around topless so i guess we can too and from kind of the the research that i've done in in regards to the the civilization at the time um it seemed that men and women were actually pretty equal in in the minoan civilization it obviously wasn't the case kind of you know around the globe <laughs> at the time but minoan culture was kind of set apart and they're actually fairly equal when you look at a lot of the artifacts like kind of the vases and things like that and it was likely that there were high priestesses that were very very powerful at the time and there's a great statue that i've put on the kickstarter page of this high priestess kind of with two snakes in her hands kind of doing this dance and uh, there's some some really interesting thoughts thoughts on that by uh, <laughs> by historians but oh, sure. uh, yeah yeah certainly it seemed like men and women were fairly equal in terms of kind of positions of power, basically, at that time. That's really interesting because it, it sounds like they were advanced in, in several different ways in that society. Mm. Did you take 
for instance, the, the gender roles that you're kind of describing and how they were seen as more equal, how mm -hmm. did you incorporate something like that within the comic and your characters? Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm hoping to. Um, so in in this first one, it's pretty action packed, and so mm -hmm. unfortunately I haven't really I I didn't really get time within this first issue to kind of address that. But that's that's coming down the line in terms of actually demonstrating that in the comic. So uh, yeah, I, I can't wait to kind of demonstrate that aspect to it, and yeah, show that other cultures at the time weren't so accepting of that <laughs> yeah that would be awesome especially because i think a lot of people might be under the impression you know since it was a, a society from so long ago that they might be more barbaric than mm -hmm. was actually the case and i'd definitely be interested in talking about kind of springboarding off of that if you could maybe go into a bit more detail about some of the main characters in the book yeah absolutely um so we've got King Minos, who you can see on the front cover there, kind of wielding what's called a labrys. So that's a double axe. And uh, he's got a lion cape hood as well, which is, which is a lot of fun. Because um, they, they did, of course, wear animal skins back then. But uh, he, obviously, he's based on the mythological King Minos that I'm sure a lot of us uh, know a little bit about with the Minotaur mythos. But he, for me, is a really good king. He's an honourable guy that's always trying to do the right thing and always keep a nice balance within his kingdom. And he has a son who's one of the main characters as well, Prince Georgus, who is his youngest son. And in the beginning of the comic that you can actually see on the Kickstarter there, he is coming of age and he's able to lead the sacrifice of the bull to uh, Poseidon, who they, who they worship. And that's because Poseidon was not only the god of the sea, but he was god of disasters, <laughs> basically, mm. as well. So volcanoes and, and things like that. So since this eruption, they've kind of been sacrificing a bull every year to him. Yeah. And now it's Georgus's turn. And then on, on top of that as well, um, you got you see her, I think, in the pages, uh, Queen Pasiphae, who is King Minos's wife and equal ruler, although we don't get a chance to explore that in this first issue. That'll, that'll certainly come up in, in later issues as well, just to demonstrate that, that fact. And then on the front cover as well, you don't see her in the, in the pages just yet, but you've got uh, Gaia, who is Minos's and um, Pasiphae's youngest daughter who has got a lot to play with in the future basically <laughs> put it that way um, i'll keep that nice and vague um yeah. but uh yeah she, she she becomes very important in in future issues and then on the flip side apart from the uh the royalty of of Knossos there's also Theseus who obviously comes from the mythological Theseus and he is a, a tribute from mainland Greece because every year mainland Greece has been giving human tributes to Knossos in order to do the bull leaping and dancing mm -hmm. that they did at the time and uh, that was a, that was a real thing that they did uh, was the bull leaping and bull bull dancing at the time they've got so they've got loads and loads of pieces of art of 
people jumping over bulls and uh it's insane if you youtube bull leaping um they still do it in spain so there's a there's a real move from kind of actually doing the bull stabbing that they do like the with the red cape kind of what what we call that um but yeah so there's a real move from kind of doing that the so-called traditional bull matador type stuff to actually doing the bull leaping and dancing so they're still kind of got a bull in a stadium but they just kind of risk their lives by jumping over this bull um and things like that it's absolutely nuts <laughs> what they're doing but basically this is what they did back in the day it sounds um, very hardcore <laughs> oh yeah 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 seriously hardcore it's uh you, you don't want to make a mistake <laughs> otherwise mm-hmm. you're going to end up with a horn in you and theseus is part of the tributes from mainland greece to crete to do that but he's got an ulterior motive basically um that you'll have to find out uh, later in the when the first issue properly comes out and then i've also got king agamemnon who is a king on mainland greece and specifically the mycenaeans and yeah he is been having to send tributes to king minos for all of what happened several years ago because agamemnon got a bit greedy basically (laughs) and yeah he's he's getting a bit sick and tired of kind of having to bend the knee to to king minos which spells trouble, basically. Oh, yes, precisely. Yeah, exactly. So it sounds like a, a big aspect of the characters, besides also the, the royalty uh, status of them, is also that there's a family dynamic going on there, too, with a lot of the characters being related and under this hierarchy. I'm kind of curious to hear more about the whole family dynamic and how that plays into the story at large. So the way that that really works is that, I mean, Georgos very much looks up to his dad and and he's keen to kind of impress him. The way that it would really play into the story is I'm trying to think of a way to describe it without giving too much. (laughs) Feel free to leave us wanting more. So (laughs) yeah, exactly. Well, they're they're a very loving family and and they try to listen to each other um, and they'll do anything. For, for, for one another as well so yeah the dynamic is that yeah they'll they'll do absolutely anything for each other but particularly Minos and Pasiphae will protect their children at all costs <laughs> yeah that's that's probably the the best way I can describe it without giving away what what happens in the in the first issue no no that's I think that's more than enough for us I mean It's definitely very interesting. I'm definitely interested to hear your take on, since these characters touch on history between Minos and Agamemnon, I'm kind of curious to see how you feel. I'm sure you've read, possibly, interpretations of these characters in other, Mm -hmm. you know, fictionalized works, whether it be Agamemnon, maybe in plays or things like that. I'd be curious to see how you feel your interpretation of the characters differs from other Mm -hmm. fictional interpretations you've seen. Yeah, well, I I think where the difference is, so Agamemnon is often depicted as a tyrant, and because he was the he was one of the main kings behind Troy, so he's often a tyrant. But I'd say where mine differs is probably Minos, because King Minos is often also depicted as a tyrant as well, and I don't think that that was the case. I think the the king that was at Knossos was probably a much loved king because they were all seemingly crete was very well off at the time Mm -hmm. he might have been seen as a tyrant elsewhere 
but on Knossos, I'm sure he was very much loved because everybody was really well off. So my take is that Minos was was probably a good king. And uh, yeah, again, not that Minos was not just the only person in charge. So you'd have a king and queen that were equally ruling. So King Minos and, and Queen Pasiphae would be much loved as a monarching couple. So yeah, I think that's probably where it differs is just depicting Minos and Pasiphae as a good ruling couple. <laughs> How do you think they would fare today if they were to lead the world as it is today? <laughs> um, I think, yeah, they'd be blown away about what's going on <laughs> right now. A little bit. <laughs> I think, yeah, just a little bit. Um, I think we're all blown away about what's going on right now. But yeah, I, I think they'd really struggle to see, you know, when we left it, we were on a good path. Um, what are you doing? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's 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 been like three and a half thousand years what have you been doing <laughs> like did you not spend any of this time preparing <laughs> exactly <laughs> thinking about being nice to each other i don't know yeah uh it's i think they'd be exceedingly shocked about what's been going on in the world um and yeah no it's it's incredible really and, and particularly they were they were pretty technologically advanced as, as i mentioned before and it's actually they think that it's the first evidence of a flushing toilet. Mm. So they, they they had a flushing toilet in the Palace of Knossos, which is incredible, really. Yeah. Um, three and a half thousand years ago. It's it's pretty nuts. Yeah, we've got we've got much to learn about them as well. Cooler, you need to have that in a future issue, of course. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah, hundred um, percent. That that's gonna that's definitely gonna feature. <laughs> So how do you feel? I think we kind of started touching on this a bit and I'd kind of like to hear about it in more detail is how you feel people will be able to relate to this story, given that it's such ancient history, how you feel people today will be able to relate to it. For me, I think they'll be able to relate to it through the adversity that the Knossos royal family are going to be facing and them kind of having to do what they need to do to survive. And in future issues, I think it's going to connect with readers on a level of having to go through adversity on your own mm -hmm. as well. Because although, you know, you, your family can be there some of the time, they can't always be there. And sometimes you got to go through things by yourself, um, particularly when you get older. So, yeah, I think connecting on, on that level to the readers is, is how it's going to work out. But also, you know, the troubles that you get within a family mm -hmm. as well, particularly oh, with yeah. siblings as well, when you're kind of, you know, you're ish similar ages, but there's also a dynamic of, you know, one of you's older, one of you's younger. And, you know, you end up with the older one telling the younger one what to do and yeah the younger one not necessarily wanting to to follow what the older older sibling is telling them to do because you're just my brother you're not my parents type of thing <laughs> yeah the inevitable sibling rivalry there exactly yeah well kind of um shifting focus a little more fully onto the people who will hopefully be backing band of warriors and then reading it themselves Kind of an interesting tidbit that I saw you had on the Kickstarter was that you have a letters page that'll be yes. featured in the book, a Fans of Warriors, which I thought was a really cool aspect because I don't see too many Kickstarter projects that are kind of offering a letters page. So I was kind of wondering if you could tell us a bit more about how that idea came to you and mm. uh, how people can get involved with it. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, well, you know, I've, I've kind of been wanting to do a letters page for, for ages, but I just didn't feel like Milford Green was the Milford Green series was the right place for it. Um, Project Hoax was a one shot. Um, mm-hmm. Access Denied at this point in time is a is a one shot as well. And again, I'm not so sure it was suitable. But the idea with Band of Warriors is that it's it's going to be ideally, I mean, we've got this first six issues planned, but I'd love to turn it into an ongoing series. And I, I always love letter pages because it's just it's so much fun when a creator is connecting directly with the readers and all the other readers get to kind of find out a little bit more about the story, even a little bit of banter between the creator and and uh, one of the readers who sends in a letter and things like that and it, it just seems like a lot of fun to me so uh, trying to bring bring back the letters page is, is what I'm, I'm wanting to do yeah no it's it's really just a case of people getting in touch with me and you can just email me on uh, samuelgeorgelondon at gmail.com and then just put in your subject line fans of warriors and yeah if you read through the kickstarter campaign feel free to to ask me any questions I'll, I'll be able to answer them in the in the letters page when we publish the first issue yeah, it's a really nice way to kind of connect with your readers differently than yeah. otherwise. It's a very interesting kind of perk that people get with the book. Now, it, talking about the the Kickstarter platform that you're using in particular, I know in your case you've had six successful Kickstarters yeah, for this right. one, which I think is definitely a very impressive number. Mm-hmm. And I know there are definitely people who struggle with kind of setting up a Kickstarter and getting it to reach that goal. So I'd be interested to hear maybe some tips you have for people who Mm. are either doing their first Kickstarter or they maybe they've done a couple and they're still looking to find find their groove, so to speak, with Kickstarter. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think if you, if you're just starting out doing a Kickstarter, um I was I was very fortunate with uh with my first one which was was the original Milford Green. I based the campaign format of the campaign off of successful Kickstarter campaigns. So, yeah, when you're making your campaign, make sure that you look at, at successful campaigns and kind of base how you structure yours on successful campaigns and and that's what I did and then I think I got fairly lucky with the idea that I had which was you know Victorians and aliens and that seemed to resonate with the Kickstarter community (laughs) it really kind of took off but at the same time I I really made sure that I was connecting with other creators on Kickstarter at the same time so make sure that you reach out to other Kickstarter creators and offer to do cross promotion as well. So that's what I did. And those that kind of said, yeah, yeah, it sounds great. You know, we're, we're very, very helpful in, in terms of putting it out to their backers as well as me putting their projects out to the backers that I had. And yeah, I I got really lucky with a few um, that were kind of really big projects. But, you know, if you don't try, you don't ask, you don't get. So you just got to kind of put yourself out there like that. But just kind of make sure that you're being nice about it. You know, don't don't be presumptuous or anything. Um, And, you know, if you don't hear back, forget about it. You know, just move on. You know, you you could do a follow up for sure. But if they don't, apply to the follow-up then you're just going to have to leave it and kind of move on a little bit but I, I know that not everybody 
does kind of cross promotion but uh, i think it really does help kickstarter creators to do the whole cross promotion thing um and then other than that yeah definitely get in touch with every comic blog under the sun that you can ideally including things like like broken frontier pipe dream comics these are all kind of uk based ones but then of course you got frontline so mm-hmm. you can oh, yeah. <laughs> you can, you can sure. get in touch with you We're here. um <laughs> exactly and you guys can help and yeah just make sure that you try and connect with people on things like twitter as well so if you if you search on twitter um i just backed whatever the title of your project is then you might find that your supporters are actually tweeting about you but not including you in the tweet so if you search i just backed band of warriors then a load of tweets will come up that don't include me in the tweet and i can kind of connect with those with those backers also obviously retweet the support the tweet that they put out there but then try and get them to continually share the project as well at the same time and then other than kind of all of those types of nuts and bolts the other thing is to is to make sure that your idea is actually appealing to people (laughs) at the same time try and make it as professional looking as possible and i know sometimes it requires a little bit of money to put into it to try and make it look professional but it's it's just it's well worth it because when people see that you know you've clearly put work into it and you know you're trying to be as professional as you can i think people certainly appreciate that and you know the the, the quality of comics on kickstarter now is really it's pre- it's getting really high i think mm-hmm. um and and you've really got to make sure that that you stick with that level of quality because otherwise you just you know people aren't people's expectations are getting higher i think of kickstarter comics so you've got to make sure that you kind of you keep up in that respect i think yeah i mean i i think that's all really awesome advice that people would be you know very beneficial to listen to particularly with you know the cross promotion between anything from creators to press to just the Mm -hmm. social media aspects you mentioned i think are really important to keep in mind when doing a kickstarter project um and yeah just making sure that you're connecting with your with your backers as well um because it's it's easily done that you know you can have a good start but if you're not necessarily connecting with your backers you can actually have people fall off and you know your your funds can actually start to go away if you're not kind of connecting with your with your backers properly so just kind of make sure that you that you water your garden basically as well (laughs) yeah Kind of going off of that, I'm kind of curious if you, during the previous six Kickstarters you've had, if you've ever taken an approach or maybe gone about something in a certain way, and then you ended up figuring out, oh no, this is this is less effective than if I do this, I should avoid doing things like this in the future, that kind of stuff that you could maybe talk a bit about? Yeah, I'm trying to think of a specific thing You're that I tried. Good. I mean, You're too no, good. yeah. I can't. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I have tried one of those Kickstarter promotion websites once because when you do a Kickstarter, you get inundated by third party services. Oh, I hate um, that. Yeah, that are like, yeah, we can promote your comic for like $50 or something like that and, and stuff like this. And, and I did that once. I didn't get anything from it. So, you know, for the most part, I'd, I recommend not to go with those. It's pretty pointless. So, yeah, that, that felt like that was the only thing that kind of has actually let me down. And, I mean, 
Gosh, I, uh, you know what? I, I always worry in about updates. Oh, yes. I, I do yeah. that too. You do, yeah. So I always worry that have I phrased everything correctly? Because obviously you don't want to send an update out and then perhaps you phrase something weirdly that you didn't think about. And then a backer reads that and says, you know what? I don't want to support this anymore. Mm. <laughs> it's like, ah, no. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I always worry about that. And you know what? It has happened a few times where I've sent an update and then, you know, maybe a couple of backers unsupport, you know, but that's not necessarily what you've said. All it maybe is, is that, you know, because you sent an update, it's reminded them that they've backed this one and then they look at it again and go, oh, you know what? I'd, I'd prefer to back this one over this one or something like that. I don't know. So it's, it's difficult to, to work out the cause and effect with with all of that stuff. But uh, yeah, and, and that's actually another tip. Be nice in your updates and things. I, I have actually seen, I saw the other day an update on, on Twitter that somebody posted, a Kickstarter update. And uh, it, it's post being funded though, but he was really going at the backers like saying you guys don't know what it's like and yeah like really kind of dissing the backers and things it's like whoa dude no sense that's like someone is handing you a 20 dollar bill and you're trying to like punch yeah. them in the face exactly and it's it was it was kind of bizarre so yeah always be uh, grateful and thankful to your backers because it it's incredible that anybody's going to be, you know, parting with a hard-earned cash into one of your creations. So you always just got to make sure that you're, you're kind of grateful and, and try and be understanding of it from the backer's perspective as well. If things are taking longer than, than expected, just be upfront with people. And Kickstarter backers are generally understanding. You know, if things are delayed, they're delayed. They don't really mind. Just you just got to tell them honestly and say I yeah, really appreciate everybody's support. But yeah, it's going to be an extra month or two before you get your rewards. I'm afraid. And most Kickstarter backers are completely understanding of it. Yeah. Moral of the story is you should be transparent and you should be yes. as nice and polite as possible. Hundred percent. That's good advice for both Kickstarter and life. <laughs> I think. I think so for sure. I guess we're sort of winding it down now. So I would like to ask before we end the interview, you know, for you to kind of promote yourself and what else you're working on. I know in particular you have, you know, you have your own publishing company that Band of Warriors will be under Signal Comics. So I don't know if you want to talk about a bit about that and just some of the other upcoming projects you have. Yeah. So Signal Comics is the publishing label that I, I kind of created for the initial Milford Green and it's continued to be my uh, my publishing label for for all of my Kickstarter creations and it, it's a bit of a pipe dream really that one day it'll become a fully fledged publishing house it would be amazing where you know I'm able to publish other creators and things like that and I'm really hoping that that does happen at some point but yeah gonna have to wait until a certain time when perhaps I'm a 
got a bigger fan base and and things like that before being able to do that but it's there waiting ready to hopefully support other creator-owned comics so i can't i can't wait for that day and uh yeah but that's only going to happen with kind of new projects and things mm-hmm. um of course i've i've got a, a secret new project that i'm working on that i can't talk about <laughs> but i'm gonna say just to kind of yeah create some mystery for the future <laughs> But apart from my mystery project, of course, uh, going to be continually working on Band of Warriors. And obviously the next one will be Band of Warriors issue two, which hopefully I'll kickstart perhaps April, May time, I think would be the plan if everything goes according to plan that is and then also access denied is almost ready to get out to the world. So I can't wait for that. And uh, then my word I've, I've just got I've got so many story ideas you've got a lot going on already <laughs> I know I know it's I'm just I'm glutton for punishment is what it is and I've just I've got so many ideas that I'd love to give to an artist but it, it really is just a matter of time unfortunately obviously I've got my day job that I've got to do and I do a lot most of this in my spare time so it's it keeps me busy that's for sure and uh, yeah I've, I've got ideas for a follow-up for access denied as well that i'd like to do and i've got another story that i'm trying to work on to do with michael uh, michael hankinen who's the artist for both the milford green series and access denied as well of course mm-hmm. so that's a lot of fun oh actually speaking of michael we are actually going to be putting together a hardcover edition of Milford Green um, and the entire Milford Green saga. So we're going to have a have an oversized hardcover edition that I think is going to be kickstarting through March, which is going to be a lot of fun. And Michael's done a custom cover for that, kind of encapsulating all three books in the series. And to say the least, it's it's an epic front cover. <laughs> so I can't, I can't wait to get that out to the world as well. Yeah, I'm certainly excited to see that. I really can't wait. And then also having it oversized as well. So it's kind of, it's going to be like uh, A4 paper size, which is, says that's 29.7 centimeters high, which is wow. trying to think off the top of my head, how much that is in inches. Um, oh, don't ask me to do math. <laughs> yeah, I know. Just so around about 10 inches, maybe 11. Um, so yeah, no, it's a sizable book. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting that out to the world, but also getting one in my hands mm-hmm. as well. And then like just being able to see it all big. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> yeah, you you certainly have plenty to keep you busy, I would say, this year alone. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, and uh, long may it continue. Oh, yes, I certainly hope so. But yeah, thank you for taking the time to, you know, chat with me and kind of sharing your history knowledge with us and all the mythology and all these awesome sounding projects that you'll be giving us it's an absolute pleasure nicole it's it's always wonderful to speak to you so thanks very much thank you that means a lot (laughs) (laughs) but yeah best of luck with your kickstarter which as of this recording i believe still has about two weeks to go thanks for joining me hopefully once again to listen to this little experiment of mine be sure to check out Band of Warriors number one, which will be active on Kickstarter until January 29th, 2021. Please let me know what you thought of this episode by mentioning me on your socials at comic underscore maven on Twitter 
If you are a creator with a project you're trying to crowdfund and you'd like to be featured on an episode, reach out to me on my website, comicmaven.com.